0: Hi, everyone. I'm Kate Mondlock, and I'm here today with my friend and colleague Anita Chari. We're developing a two-part podcast for this CAA series. Um, we're calling it Resourcing and Reconnecting, thinking through trauma-informed pedagogy and the visual arts. Uh, so I think it would be best if we started with some quick introductions. Um, let me begin by introducing Anita. Anita Chari is a political theorist, somatic educator, and writer based in Portland, Oregon. She's associate professor of political science at the University of Oregon. Her research explores the significance of aesthetics and embodiment for critical theory and practice. She mobilizes critical theory, somatic work, movement, artistic practices, and the voice to reveal new possibilities for political subjectivity in the present. Chari is author of A Political Economy of the Senses, published by Columbia University Press, and is co-founder of Embodying Your Curriculum, an organization that teaches embodied trauma informed social justice practices to educators and healthcare practitioners. Thanks for being here, Anita.
1: Thanks, Kate, for having me and for having this conversation. And uh, I just wanted to begin by introducing Kate. So, Kate Mondlock is professor of contemporary art history and theory in the Department of History of Art and Architecture at the University of Oregon, where she holds a joint appointment as faculty and residence in the Clark Honors College. She writes and teaches about contemporary art spectatorship, especially as it relates to new technologies. She's the author of Screens, Viewing Media Installation Art, and A Capsule Aesthetic, Feminist Materialisms in New Media Art, both published by the University of Minnesota Press. And her current book project explores
0: attention and body-mind awareness in art since 1950. Great, thank you, Anita. And I guess now uh, we could have begun by saying this, but it's clear that we both are actually colleagues at University of Oregon, where we're really excited to be able to work together and develop this work jointly and have these kinds of conversations. Uh, So in fact, we are planning to do this as a two part series. Um, today, part one, we'd like to have a sort of introduction to embodied and trauma informed approaches for pedagogy, including practical resources for students, teachers, and administrators. And that will be um, drawing uh, for the most part from Anita's really fascinating work in that area. And then part two, um, our next episode at a future date. We'll explore embodied and trauma-informed approaches specific to visual arts pedagogy, which is more of my area, examining how these body-mind awareness techniques might inform how we teach our students to see. So I'd be very uh, grateful if you could begin with something that might seem quite basic to you, but interesting to the rest of us, is just to simply define what is trauma-informed pedagogy, and when did you first encounter it? Yeah, thanks for that, Kate. I think that this is such an
1: important question. you know, um, And what I would say about what you know trauma-informed pedagogy is, to me is it really comes from a recognition that sensation is uh, a fundamental dimension of learning, basically, that the question of sensation and how we feel in our bodies from moment to moment, is a repository really, that our sensations contain within them memories. And those memories are not only personal, but they're also collective. So that within within the body, we contain this sense, this record of um, social history even. And so to me, trauma-informed pedagogy is really about forging that link and understanding that what happens when we're in the classroom and when we really wanna have a sense of including the whole of ourselves um, and really to be talking about questions that are you know, deeply polarizing in our society that acknowledging the dimension of trauma and acknowledging the dimension of history means that we have to go into the body and, and that doing so allows us to have a kind of a different register of conversation in our classrooms. And you know, to me, the question of you know, when I first encountered it, I actually came to trauma-informed pedagogy when I was in graduate school. And you know, I went to the University of Chicago, which was and is a super intense place and a pretty cerebral place. And so, um, you know, for me, encountering trauma-informed pedagogy came at this moment when I really felt that academia was unsustainable for me. I felt that there was a place, especially as a woman of color, where I could not include the whole of myself in my research uh, or in the conversations that I was having, having and that that. Was having implications for me. That was that was having repercussions for my health. It was impacting, you know, my sense of the relevance of what I was doing. And so, uh, the encounter with trauma-informed pedagogy became something that was deeply personal for me. And then it also was something that I saw had everything to do with my work in political theory and had everything to do with how do we ha- create enough safety in our classrooms so that we can have these conversations
0: about the ruptures uh, of history that we must deal with. Thank you. That's really um, very informative. And I really appreciate you sharing your personal encounter and your personal investment in this work too. It seems like it has really made a big difference in your life and professionally speaking. Um, And so I'd be curious, I I heard you use several terms here and we've had other conversations in which um, one, these terms can be uh, sort of interchangeable and yet not exactly so those terms are things like trauma informed or perhaps sometimes the word embodiment other times things like somatics or somatic awareness i'm wondering if you could help us sort of suss out the difference among those terms and let us know why is it that trauma informed is the preferred term um it it tends to be the preferred term for you and for others right now Mm
1: -hmm. yeah i think uh you know i think it's really the words that we use uh have so much weight and relevance, right? And so it really does matter the words that we use. And I think you know, with trauma informed, I think this is a word that has become a lot more um, a lot more used in our society over the last year in the context of the pandemic and in the context of the issues um, around racial justice and racialized violence, anti-black violence that we are, Um, Reckoning with and deepening into uh, in this time, because really trauma informed with the word trauma in it brings our attention immediately to the fact that we live in a society that uh, that is traumatizing for many people right that we have that racialized trauma, for example, is really built in. To the experience of of people of color in this society, and that um, you know, in so many other ways, uh, that numerous ways that we can talk about our society is uh, overwhelming and and um, full of violence. So I think that trauma informed um, is an important term for that reason because it draws our attention to that fact. Um, and and I think you know, for me, I wouldn't say that it's the preferred term for me so much as that I would say that. I feel um, it's useful that in the last year, especially people have been able to talk about that term more, especially within the university context, because I think that's actually somewhat new. I mean, of course, there have been many of us practicing trauma-informed work for a long time within academia in our little corners. But I do do see that in the last few years, there's a kind of burgeoning and more mainstream interest within academia in that. And so um, you know, I, I think that that's why it's a useful term more than anything else. I think somatics to me is a term that's more general. Like it's more about a discipline, you know, sort of like talking about art history or political science. Like to me, somatics is a discipline and a body of work, a constellation of work by, um, by you know, a lot of pioneers who were really teaching us and foraying into these realms of embodied practice and the mind-body connection, you know, from you know, certainly from earlier, but, you know, from the 50s and 60s to the present. So I think of people like Bonnie Bainbridge-Cohen or Emily Conrad, who's one of my teachers, Anna Halperin or um, Ida Rolf, um, Feldenkrais, we can think of the Alexander technique or um, Skinner releasing technique, so, or somatic experiencing. So all of these different practices and disciplines um, come together in the term somatics. So it's a more general term. And then, and then to me, uh, embodiment is more about, you know, it's about trying to talk about an experience, you know, it's more about talking about the, um, something that is indescribable really, which is the, the felt sense of sensation in our bodies, which at one level we can't really refer to in words, but embodiment kind of gives us a way to at least shift our, our, our,
0: um, our language to try to attune to the body in a different way. Thank you. That really helps to give a bit more definition to what we're talking about today. Um, I'm wondering if you could share with us a little bit uh, from your perspective of what this looks like in the classroom when we talk about trauma-informed or embodied or however we might phrase it, those sorts of uh, practices incorporated into a classroom and perhaps you could even share a brief experiential practice um, with us, one that you've used in the classroom in the past. Yeah, I think
1: it, I think this is, you know, I think you know this um, as well as I do that it's like it's, it can be difficult to describe, you know, these practice like what does it really look like to do somatic work within the classroom right because the, the work is subtle but you know, what I would say about what it might look like in the classroom is, first of all, it's a practice of making space for embodied experience. And I think what that involves in the first place is leaving leaving time at, to slow down, to allow the to allow people to just be in their bodies uh, in a nonverbal space for a little while uh, and to, let go of some of the drama of the mind for for just a few minutes, at least at the beginning of of a class. I think at the most basic level, that's that's what it looks like in my classroom is just really guiding my students to take some time to just feel themselves. And that can sound really simple, but I, I think we all know, those of us who work within higher education, I think we all know that as simple as that can be, it's not that common, it's still not that common, right? To to just tell students it's really relevant and important for you to be able to feel yourself, to feel your own body. So, you know, for me, a grounding practice and a slowing down practice are really where it all starts. Um, I do that at the beginning of pretty much every single class that I teach. But beyond that, there's such a a level of creativity in embodied practices, you know, for me, it involves, know practices of teaching my students how to negotiate boundaries in their bodies with one another it um it involves practices of like embodied writing it involves um you know facilitating my students in their process of sharing their work with one another you know like when when we we often write a lot in classes right i mean students in my class write a lot but how often do we really guide our students to be able to share that in a way that really takes account of the vulnerability of the experience of 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 sharing our work, right? Especially when that work can be very deeply personal. Um, so so to me, it looks like all of those different things. And then you know the important thing I think for me is not just what it looks like, but more more relevantly like what it feels like. You know, and I think for for people, for educators, the real shift is to start to prioritize the felt sense in the room more than more than anything else, right? As a kind of base, or at least as equally as some other things, right? As the basis of understanding um, what's happening in the room, right? Not just not just the ideas that are being exchanged, but what's happening at a more unconscious and embodied somatic level also becomes very relevant. So, so to me, it's like we call it pedagogy, but it's not just about um, leading other people through something. It's just as fundamentally about being able to deepen into an embodied experience yourself as a professor or a teacher, educator um, in in that environment. And that I think for some of us is the biggest leap, right? Yeah, I can be in my own body during my own classroom. My own embodied experience is relevant.
0: Right. Yeah. And so- you- oh yeah, tell me. Would you be uh, would you be willing to share? I know that you've done a lot of this in your work um, with students over the you know past decade or so. Is there a particular practice that you'd be willing to share with us, either just walking us through it, or you know we could actually participate in it either way? Yeah, I'd love to. So maybe I think what would be good just now is just to
1: take a moment to do a, a grounding practice. So um, so. For you and also for everybody listening, just take a moment to just bring your attention into your own physical body for a moment. And just let yourself get really comfortable, you know, in your chair or wherever you're sitting, wherever you're listening to this. Just let yourself get comfortable. So unlike a meditation practice or, you know, this is not a heroic practice. This is not a practice where we have to keep our spine really straight or um, any of these kinds of, um, I don't know, more, more rigid dimensions of what we associate with mindfulness sometimes. It's more just about letting go and just beginning to bring your attention just inside your own physical body. And you can just close your eyes or you can just relax the, just allow a little space to emerge between your eyes and just relax your eyes a little bit. And just begin to notice just the whispers of sensation that are beginning to emerge for you. So you can just turn into the quality of the sensations. I'm just noticing if you feel maybe heat or coolness. Maybe you're sensing movement. So whatever it is, you're just noticing, just sensing. And then now you're just gonna allow your attention to start settling down lower in your physical body. So just let it sink down, almost like a stone just falling down through water. And just bring your attention down into your sit bones. So those are those pointy bones on either side of your spine. So just let as much of your attention as you can just settle down into your sit bones. And just take in the contact, that your sit bones are making with your chair beneath you. Just feeling the support of the ground beneath you.
0: Okay, and
1: then now we'll just emerge from this. So this is just a short practice. So just finding a place where you really honor your, honor your own impulse to just when you feel, when you feel it, to open your eyes and come out of this practice.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Anita. That was really uh, very much needed. I didn't even realize. um, And now I feel much more grounded. I I really appreciated much of what you just said. It was um, the idea of the getting in touch with the sort of nonverbal and feeling sensation part of our experience and and helping our students do the same. Um, And it's interesting, and maybe we can circle back to this in our next conversation, to think of how that is a sort of... um, enacted differently in, say, visual arts pedagogy than in other kinds of pedagogy. There's some sort of, there's a head start in some ways, and then there's sort of more of a actual roadblock in perhaps some others. But that was really lovely. And I I loved your use of the word vulnerability. I think it really helps to explain for people who aren't perhaps as familiar with these practices or the histories and theories involved, that it's a sort of shorthand for just really explaining that we're trying to be okay with vulnerability and help others as well. Um, So with that in mind, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about your current work in this area. I know that uh, that you have um, ex- we talked a bit in the introduction about how this is central to your research but also and, and also your pedagogy but I know you also have a kind of um, co-curricular or perhaps extracurricular um, interest in this in your in some another area of your production so maybe you could talk a bit about that for a moment. Yeah, well, I created,
1: you know, because of how these practices impacted me so much, you know, in my personal life and in my, you know, my academic work and my research. I mean, really, my encounter with trauma-informed pedagogy changed changed the course of my life in so many ways. And so, you know, I think from that experience, I came to see how important it was actually to bring this work more um, substantially into academia. And so I created... I co-created an organization called Embodying Your Curriculum that um, I created with a a colleague and mentor of mine, Angelika Singh, who is a somatic educator and trauma therapist. And together, we bring and teach trauma-informed pedagogies to other professors um, and other educators, um, as well as, you know, people, a lot of different kinds of people in academia, so not just um, not just, uh, professors, um, but also people who are in support roles in academia as well. And we also bring the work to healthcare practitioners, which, which has been a more recent, um, recent development of our work. Uh, and, and, you know, the work is really about supporting faculty, supporting people in higher education right now, especially as we see that during the pandemic, there is, um, there's a real there's a deeper need to to reckon with the overwhelm that we feel. But the fact of the matter is it's not new. And I think that we know that. It's not a new thing that we all feel overwhelmed or that we um, feel sped up in our classrooms or that we feel like we can't somehow um, make headway in the midst of an extremely polarizing society within our classrooms, right? And to take care of ourselves in the midst of that. So embodying your curriculum is about um, using this moment in a way that uh, helps us to see that it's a moment that demands innovation and demands that we have to leave behind these cerebral models that we see in higher education which are really part of all the things that we say that we're trying to move beyond like creating uh, creating you know um, universities that can deconstruct and dismantle white privilege for example right to create a more inclusive classroom space what we have to understand I think is that that is not just that cannot just be about words. That has to be about a tangible experience of working through history as it as it manifests in the present. And, and for me, trauma-informed pedagogies and teaching professors about it is the way that we, we make progress in that and also that we take care of ourselves, especially those who have been marginalized by these institutions um,
0: who, need, who need resources more than anyone else. Thank you for talking about that and so this embodying your curriculum is the name of the organization correct That's right. uh, so if so if any of our listeners wanted to learn more about how to bring this to either their own there's faculty courses, there are um, consultations there's also institutional support that you are offering would go to embodying your embodying your curriculum.com is that correct? Okay, fantastic. Yeah, I really encourage people to do that. I've had the great pleasure um, of having been able to take many of Anita's classes and also to enjoy many of her sort of um, some ad hoc workshops. And it really is quite a transformative thing. It, It makes me feel proud to be in the academy at this time to think that there is this potential to really not just uh, talk the talk but really walk the walk if, if to use a try a very um, tired phrase but it's it's quite inspiring um and one thing that I thought was really um it quite profound about many of your teachings and you could uh, you've hinted at this a little bit already but maybe you could help explain for us in the, in the most clear way um You know, what if someone were to say, you mentioned social justice and sort of anti-racism work and the importance of um, particularly of catering to underrepresented populations or people who have had um, traumatic experience. Could you just give us a little more um, detail about how does trauma-informed pedagogy relate in a kind of uh, direct way to efforts around social justice and anti-racism? Um, I think sometimes that can get lost in the shuffle for people, and I know you you've articulated it quite well before.
1: Yeah, thanks, Kate. Um, I know, I think this connection is absolutely crucial. You know, I think that we see, you know there's been there's been a lot of work um, especially that's come out, you know in recent years by, you know we think we could think of the work of Resma Menachem for example, who has done really profound pathbreaking work in establishing the connection between um, you know, trauma work and, and anti-racist work. And you know his contention, which I fully agree with, and it really is the substance of the work that Angelica and I do together, is that uh, if we don't work through um, traumatic histories, uh, which, which are collective and intergenerational, um, and, uh, how, and, and don't acknowledge how they manifest within our own bodily experience and our own survival strategies, we can't really get a grip on, on doing anti-racist work within, within the academy or within society, you know, because, because the fact of the matter is when we're talking about trauma, we're talking about survival strategies, right? And we're talking about um, places where overwhelming experiences, which, were, which did not have the opportunity to complete, continue then to recapitulate themselves in the present moment. And so the the double-edged sword of this is that, that that applies both for um, people of color who have been the object and continue to be the object of of racialized violence. Um, But it also actually has to do with how we can understand differently, um, the problem of of white privilege uh, because it it helps us to understand how the moment we try to dismantle and deconstruct white privilege, we we um, we get the lashing out of certain kinds of survival strategies, right? And we get a certain resistance to the dismantling of that so that places us in a deep double bind within our institutions and so to me it's like we have to be able to acknowledge that and we have to be able to um, you know support those who um, who have been the object of of racialized violence people of color Um, and i think that often when we think about traditional anti-racist or traditional dei work let's just say we don't often enough think about the way that that would need to support people of color, right? I mean, and or what would that even take, right? And part of the reason for that is that often people of color don't really want, don't really feel uh, enough trust for their institutions. I'm speaking from personal experience here to, to be able to feel that one could resolve um, those traumatizing experiences within that institution, right? And, and rightly so. I think we all, we, we all understand why that would be the case. So that places us in a deep double bind. And I think that you know Angelica's and my work has really been about how do we start to support um, and give terminology and give practices to, to, um, to those who really um, have been excluded. Um, from these institutions, and and to start to have a conversation from that level, but then also how we can do it to we can do it together, such that we can have acknowledgement and accountability also on those who have been the beneficiaries of privilege. That also takes resource. It takes it takes a lot of resourcing to to have the kind of ego strength to really be able to to, to dismantle privilege. Right? We know that. So that's going to take also practices that's going to take a deeper, a deepening into embodiment to be able to have the kind of humility to do that. So on on both
0: aspects of that, I think trauma work helps us. Mm, Yes, that's very clear. Thank you so much. Um, I wonder if you could share, are there things about trauma-informed pedagogy, you know, one thing that one could almost say that these things are, you you mentioned earlier, sort of trendy right now. Um, It's sort of, you can't really go too far without hearing about trauma-informed this or that or mindfulness or embodied that. And those things are on some level that's quite exciting to those of us who've been invested in these things for a long time. On another level, its it can be concerning and the, you know, one wouldn't want to just simply reintroduce a kind of new form of biopolitics or something um, of a control of the body as opposed to what you're talking about. Do you have any hesitations along those lines or, or are there any other... Um, sort of myths or problematic aspects of this kind of work that you want to make sure um, don't continue or, or that you would want to debunk anything, any myths or anything like that.
1: This is such a crucial point, Kate, I think. And I think about it all the time, you know, I think, you know, I feel like it's important to, to distinguish between. um, I, I first of all, think it's important to distinguish between work somatic work or, mindfulness work, embodied practices that are oriented towards coping, that are oriented towards kind of shoring up institutions that are um, based on flawed foundations and really compensating for uh, neoliberal austerity, right? Which no doubt you you see that run rampant around our society, right? It's like, okay, people don't have healthcare, and they don't have any. They they're completely precarious in their work and aren't paid enough, and so they're stressed out. And so, why don't we give them some mindfulness tools so that they can feel less anxious? Right. That's you know I think that's just the most basic example of how we we see it going around. And that that to me would be an example of of a, a type of mindfulness or you know practice that's really trying to co- teach people how to cope with something that is fundamentally wrong you know or fundamentally needs to be resolved and fixed and so what you know I think um you know the way that I really approach this is that we have to think about this from a transformative paradigm that that embodied practices cannot cannot be used simply to help people to cope they have to be used in a way that understands the dynamism of the practices themselves which is that if you're using these practices in in a way that um, appreciates their transformative impact then what you'll see actually is not just that we all like feel less stressed out somehow and are more accommodating towards the institutions we live in but actually that we have more agency and energy to change them um, both at the micro level and at the macro level so and i i don't you know i think those levels are are deeply related right so it's not just one or the other it's not just structural change or like subjective change and you know that's the real um power of you know the feminist traditions that understand the deep link between those two um and our work is really informed by that so to me it's like if you're using these embodied practices that we teach what we find over and over again is that you're gonna first of all you're not necessarily going to feel so great afterwards, you know, which is okay. Yeah. You do a grounding practice. You do usually feel more slowed down. And so, yes, I do feel better when I do a grounding practice, but you know, the, I might also be more sensitized to what needs to shift both in my life and in the collective sphere. Right. That is what it does for me, you know, and then what it can also do is heighten actually the, the places of, of activation that can arise. Now in, in our work, what, what we see those places of activation as is actually a sign of health, right? And when we get, when, when activation arises, it's really a sign that something is coming up to be resolved. And it's something that needs to be resolved through a, a deeply transformative form of contact. And that contact is not just a repetition of the same old, it is actually, it is actually a shift. So that's just in a nutshell how I would describe, mm. you know, the difference.
0: Yeah, that's extremely helpful. I I, I always like the description. It seems that it's evocative of something that I've heard before of the idea that it's like you're dealing with a pond of water is our mind, is, our, is, is each of us. And when it gets all stirred up, it, you know, it's hard to see what's going on. When you, everything settles, it's more clear, but the muck is still there. <laughs> and so I think you're encouraging us to work with the muck and realize that, just having the still pond isn't the end game, right? There's something else to be to be uh, working on there. So that was very helpful. Um, <laughs> and I, let's see. So, you know, you and I could obviously talk forever on these topics and you've been really generous with your time so far, but maybe to bring us toward a close here, um, are there any, who, if you could name maybe three people or three references, resources, what are the three things you would recommend to someone else who's really, um, that were most very influential for your work, and perhaps could be useful to someone else. Yeah, thanks for
1: that, Kate. Um, ah, yeah, there's you know there's so many traditions that have uh, informed my own work, and I, I do think that the process of deepening into embodied work is like an, a process of inspiration and illumination. You know, of really like following following your own path as informed as it's informed by your own history you know and so for me you know one person who has been who is very influential in my work and my um you know coming into somatic work was Emily Conrad actually who was a real pioneer in the realm of somatic movement and she uh she wrote a book called Life on Land which is really an extraordinary book and it's not for the faint of heart because it's not some manual to something but it's it's a it's really a more, um, like, uh, more imaginative exploration of trying to describe what it means for us to truly d- dwell in the body, and what that means in terms of, you know, the survival of our species, essentially. So it's it's a really um, beautiful, profound book, just, you know, if I think in terms of, of resources. Um, but, you know, if I'm also thinking about just what I would tell people, who are interested in deepening, you know, into somatic work, which I think is also, um, you know, part of the question. It's like, I, I would say it's it's about using this time, this time during the pandemic, uh, to, to really ask ourselves, you know, when we're in our own classrooms, or even if you're not teaching, you know, you're preparing to teach, maybe you're, you're just, you're on um, doing research or in your creative practice right now. But I, I think it's really about asking ourselves, like, what do what are my needs within my work? You know, because I think so often there's this place of skipping over that question, especially in academia. You know, I think so often we don't, we're oriented towards productivity and we're not oriented enough towards questions of really deep need, resource and, and pleasure in our work. And I think that um, prioritizing that prioritizing pleasure from our embodied experience is is I think where it all comes from. And I think so often we have dread, you know, in our work going into the classroom or finishing a book. I'm working on finishing a book right now. And I I'm not gonna lie to you, I have dread come up when I when I work on some of the tighter, more cerebral aspects of this work, because those are certainly there. I'm a critical theorist aside from being a somatic practitioner. So I, I think for me it's this constant question of, of coming back to my own sensations and my own embodied experience and really asking at a deep level, what, what do I need? What do I need in my classroom? Because I think when I ask that, I, I, um, I have less of, I have more of a tendency to see my own growth happening in the classroom and my own transformation that, um, there's, there's much, there's a much more interesting, juicy process happening there for me, rather than just, I'm trying to fill somebody up with some knowledge, which which gets boring, you know. I mean, I think that kind of approach to mastery is is deadening, and so uh, I I think to to it takes a lot to let go of that orientation towards mastery in academia. Uh, and then we need resources. We need resources to be able to do it because it's such an ego diminishing process, really. And we're taught to build ourselves up with our minds. So I I just feel like um, in the time of this pandemic, we can use a break. This breakdown. Uh, as an opportunity
0: for um, for deep deep self- care, which is also care of the world. What a, what a lovely way to end our conversation. A deep self-care, which is also care for the rest of the world, I think, is just such a perfect way to put it. Um, it may not seem intuitive to some people, but hopefully after they've heard this entire conversation, that will start to make a bit more sense. And they will be able to pull out some of the references you've mentioned. And, of course, I do really want to encourage people to check out embodyingyourcurriculum.com. Uh, to learn more about the really wonderful mentoring and training and uh, just sort of general companionship resources that you offer for people who are trying to um, move into this more vulnerable and more um, caring and just more uh, alive place in their academic lives. Um, So thank you so much for sharing today, Anita, and I really look forward to our next conversation. Thank you so much, Kate. It's been so great to talk to you
1: and it'll be great to continue with part two of our series next time.